Good morning, everyone. Hey, do we have any people in the house who love being right? Let's just be honest. We're at church. If you can't be honest in church, where can you be honest? Anyway, show of hands, who loves being right? Okay, yeah, like, like I want to see the people who are like, man, you will argue till you're blue in the face if you're absolutely convinced you're right about something, right? Like, if you're playing a game, like, for example, a, a game that we play, and, and actually one that I am undefeated in, categories, right? Uh, maybe it's because I just like words and I use them, but uh, when we play categories as a family, uh, there is a rule, a house rule, that if you use alliteration, like for example, if the, if the word is C and it's dessert, chocolate chip cookies, three C's, is actually three points, not one point, right? So, so when we are having family gatherings and playing games, I'll make words like blue buffoons, right? Or, or something like that, right? And, and I'm like, it's a band. It works. It counts, right? And I will argue till I'm blue in the face because I like being right and I like winning sometimes, right? Uh, my wife, however, she is, she, I always say this, she's the Holy Spirit in our marriage, she convicts me more than anyone I know. Uh, I, I listen to her on wisdom, even though she is, she's like said, hey, you're the leader of our household, but I'm going to tell you which way to go, right? <laughs> uh, she, she, man, she's so gracious. There's times where I've caught her being right about something when, with someone that she's having a discussion about, but she's, she's willing to just like let it go just because she'd rather keep the peace. Isn't that, isn't that sweet? Isn't that cute? Like my wife is just cute. I love her. I just want to pinch her. Cheeks and she's cute. That's cute. I love this series because by reading this creed together, there is something that we can be certain of. We are right. We don't have to question our doctrine and ask, like, are we are we certain this is the right way to think about God? No, no. We we know that the creed, the Apostles' Creed, is the oldest and most trusted creed in church history. Started around 200 AD from the people that actually followed the apostles, and the apostles themselves told them the things to think. Uh, in fact, just last yesterday, right after men's breakfast, I had an awesome conversation with a gentleman on just how, how, how can we trust the Word of God, and how do we know that the canon is closed? And, and the creed, this is what we've been saying every single week, the creed is not an authority in and of itself. It's authoritative because we draw it right from Scripture. So we're going to do what we've been doing for the last seven weeks. We're going to stand together for the eighth time, and we're going to read the creed together. Let's go ahead and read this creed and realize when we say this, we are right about what it means to think about God. It says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Give yourself a hand and have a seat. There's some things if you're kind of questioning, like the, the, what does it mean to be 
the Holy Catholic Church. We've talked about that being the universal church and how Catholic doesn't mean Roman Catholicism. It means universal. That's what the original word means of Catholic. We also discussed what does it mean for him to descend into hell? Did he, did he, did he receive more punishment for our sins? No, we don't believe that. Uh, hell, when we, and I don't want to get too deeply into this, but uh, hell from, from our Western mindset, we think of heaven or hell and that's it. Uh, but, but the way that they use it in the, in the New Testament is hell had different places. There was Hades, Gehenna, and uh, it, there was one place that was reserved for torment and punishment. And, you know, and then there was a place where just dead people go when they die. Like they just, they just go to the, where dead people go, and that's where Jesus went. So he didn't descend into a place of torment. Uh, but he went, and we talked about that, so I don't want to get into it because uh, I would preach here another 30 minutes, and I want to make sure you guys can catch the game. So let's, let's keep going. If you have questions, I promise you, you can tune online, find our YouTube page, and it's all there. You can just find the week that is uh, in, in that area. Today, we're going to talk about, uh, I love you so much, I was going to actually wrap up this series and bring up three points, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, but the more I began to pray and study and, and prepare, I'm like... Uh, we got to get out of here sooner, so I'm just going to talk about forgiveness of sins this morning. Amen? All right. So this is, this is the phrase. I believe the forgiveness of sins. Everybody say the word sin. Sin. What does sin mean? Sin means this. It, it's, I mean, there's very, it's a very nuanced word, but at its, at its primal uh, definition, the word sin means this, to miss the mark. To miss the mark. Missing the mark is sin. So if, if there is a target, it doesn't matter if you miss by an inch or by a mile. Missing is missing. So this whole concept that we've developed in our culture where we say, oh, that's a, that's a, you know, a small sin or a big sin or there's a medium sin or there's an extra small sin. Like, like there's no sizes of sin. Sin is sin. And it all separates us from the mark that God has set. Now, there are arguments in Scripture where Paul says that some sin weigh differently, like sexual sin weighs differently than most sins because sexual sin uh, has ramifications that are more than just physical. He says you sin physically, but you hurt yourself emotionally, physically, spiritually. So, so this idea that you know, all sin is, is, is fine, it's like, no, no, so some do have uh, heavier ramifications, and, and that's just the reality of, of the way God has designed us. But here's what we know about sin. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23 it says this for everyone has sinned we all fall short of God's glorious standard that means when it comes to our right standing with God nobody in this room approaches him better than another we have all sinned you've sinned I've sinned he's sinned she's sinned We've all sinned for ice cream. Like, I don't know where I was going with that. We've all sinned. That, that's just the reality. That means right now. Here, ready? Let, just let, let the air escape in the room. All of us are sinners. Saved by grace, hopefully. But all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. There was a study done in 2017 by Lifeway Research, and, and this is kind of what the American view on sin is. Which of the following best describe you? 34% of the people answered, I am a sinner, and I work on being less of one. That, my friends, is the quintessential description of a works-based 
salvation. This idea that I'm going to work really hard to not be a sinner, and if I, if I just work hard enough, that'll earn me favor with God. And I'm happy to say this morning that that is not what we preach, and that's not what the Bible teaches. You cannot work your way to right standing with God. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't long to live holy lives? Absolutely, we should. But we do so through the grace of the Holy Spirit. So, 34% of Americans have some understanding of sin. They agree with sin, but uh, they're like, I'm just going to work hard and be less one of them. Interestingly enough, as I, as I dove deeper, uh, Catholics actually answer that uh, 70%. Uh, evangelicals only answer that 30%. And as one who was raised in Catholicism, Roman Catholic Church, I, it, just, it just like reminds me of, of, man, we have work to do. We have work to do to get the gospel out to every person, uh, essentially according to this, in, in, in our country. Uh, other people, 28% said, I am a sinner and I depend on Jesus Christ to overcome sin. Amen. Who is thankful to name themselves among those ranks. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Uh, I remember being there and I also remember being here. I've, I've been there in my life. Sin does not exist. It's a societal construct that those who are in positions of power have implemented upon us in order to control us. There's no such thing as sin. So let's all be anarchists and listen to punk rock. I've been there, right? Like, like that, that was me. Uh, I've even ha- have the audacity, like, yeah, I believe in sin, but, but I'm not a sinner because I don't believe in Jesus. Now what, right? So I, I've, I've been there also. Um, I, 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 uh, I've never been here. Um, and maybe, maybe I was for like 30 seconds, and then I quickly jumped here. Uh, I am a sinner, and I'm fine with that, right? The moment I became aware that sin is a reality, I was like, Whoa, I got, I got to do something about it. And the moment I heard about Jesus, I'm like, that's where I'm going. He's the one who can purify me of all unrighteousness. I want Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And then there's a segment of our population, 15% of the people who say, I prefer not to say. That's just intellectual talk for, uh, let's go to the next slide. I am a sinner, but I'm ashamed and I don't want to talk about it. The majority of us would have believed that sin is a reality. And if, in fact, that, that's the first point that I want to make today. Sin is a reality. There, there's no need to mince words. Sin is a reality. Maybe today you don't believe in God. Uh, what, what our survey showed us is that even those who don't believe in God have somewhat of an understanding that there is a thing called righteousness and unrighteousness, and I have a tendency to be in that, that, that area. If you don't believe in sin, I would say just look at our culture. I believe cancel culture is proof that sin is real. Like there are segments of our population who follow the lives of celebrities, and uh, they are looking They're just scouring Twitter, looking through old tweets, looking for a reason to cancel them, right? It kind of reminds me of like the old Wild West days. Any fans of Westerns in this this place? Am I the only one who, okay, there's a few of us. All right, all right, I like it. Yeah, I I like Westerns. I'm like, there's not room for both of us, right? Like, like I love it. It's cool. Um, uh, Westerns are are great, and and there's sometimes in, in Western films where the whole town gathers, and they are going to witness a person Go to the gallows. The whole town gathers, and they're booing this individual because they deserve what they're about to receive. 
we have a modern form of the gallows, and it's called cancel culture, where we all gather and we're like, ooh, let's make sure this person never makes another movie again, right? Will Smith, RIP, like I, I, he's not going to be the genie this time. It's kind of sad, but, but we love cancel culture. Can I just say this? In the church, I believe cancel culture to the world has become a substitute for the gospel. And I believe in the church, we should sidestep cancel culture. I'm not saying we agree with the things people say. There are some things that deserve to, to be hidden from, from, from the light, uh, to not be given a voice. I, I believe there, that that to be true. Uh, I, I don't believe in, uh, I, I do believe in uh, the freedom of speech. I believe that there should be a public square where all ideas can be exchanged. But I do believe as Christians, there are some that we navigate towards because they promote Christ or not, right? So, so we go to the ones that promote Christ. Uh, I, I, I say all this to say, as Christians, we cannot allow cancel culture to come into the church and provide a substitute for the gospel. As Christians, we should be looking for the ministry of reconciliation. We should look to bring forgiveness and reform to the lives of people, not ever to just put up an arm and say, nope, you are canceled. That's not for us. We answer to a higher authority. There is a judge. And yes, we do judge. We judge the fruit of people's lives. But by and large, we know that Christ is the judge. So, so we don't believe in cancel culture, but we know that our society, who may not believe in sin, does believe in a form of it because they live out cancel culture. Can I also say this? We all know that sin's a reality, but you and I have a tendency to maximize everyone else's sin while simultaneously minimizing our own. My kids are a perfect example of this. August will take a nugget from Desmond's plate and just laugh, right? Just a menacing, <laughs> just like laugh because he's teasing his brother, getting under his skin, and he's eating this chicken nugget. And then Desmond, you know, after he cries and wipes his tears, he looks at August and he grabs a nugget and he eats it. And August is like, Dad, he ate my nugget. It's not fair. This and that. Spank him, right? Like he's bringing all these things. And I'm like, dude, you just ate his nugget. He's like, yeah, but I did it to be funny. <laughs> he did it to be mean. And I'm like, dude, you are minimizing what you have just done. And you are emphasizing and maximizing what he just did. We cannot do that as a people but we do. Can you believe that, girl, saying that? Girl, you're gossiping about her right now. Like, like, like can you just stop? Oh, goodness. But I, I don't want to make light of sin. Here's the second point. Sin should horrify us. Sin should horrify us. Ephesians chapter 2, look at this, look at this uh, weighty, just the weight of the words that Paul chooses to use. He says this, as for you, and he's not using the singular version of you, he's using the plural, so it's almost like you, church, right? He's saying this, as for you, you all were dead in your transgressions. Everybody say the word transgressions. Transgressions and sins. And we're going to tease those two words in a, in a bit here. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. There's nuances, there's hues of, of, of difference here. Verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, 
the air meaning like this, this atmosphere, not, not just like metaphorical air or literal air rather, but just like, like the, the space that we per- currently reside. Satan currently resides in this space, right, uh, until he is one day judged and we'll, we await that day and we'll talk about that later. So he says here, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, the spirit of Satan, all of us also lived among them at once or at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh or our sin nature. We used to just look around and say, what do I want? And selfishly, what, what can appease me, right? A very humanistic uh, way, philosophy of thinking. What, what, what's mine? You know, and he says here, and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. When the Bible talks about sin, it uses horrifying imagery, deserving of wrath dead in our transgressions and sin. It's not cute. I want you to be very clear this morning, or I want to be very clear with you this morning. Sin is not a sickness that needs a doctor. There is no just antidote. There's no remedy. There's no pill that you pop and say, all right, I'm sin-free. Listen, sin is death, and we are in need of a Savior. It's Jesus. So sin is not just a condition that you need to work through and, you know, go to some counseling sessions, take a few, you know, medications, and then eventually you'll, you'll overcome it. Sin kills. Sin commits genocide. Sin destroys. Sin is horrifying. Sin, my friends, will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and it will cost you more than you'll ever want to pay. Some of you are there. It started with just a scroll, turned into a click, led to a relationship. It takes you further, holds you longer, and costs you more. Sin is horrifying. But can I say this? My third point today, God forgives every hue of sin. Do you know, do you know what the, the word hue means? We use it to describe color, hues of color. Right now, if I had the time, I would call up some different individuals in, in this church who are wearing the color brown, and I would, I would stand next to them, and I would, I would, you know, just differentiate the hues of color, right? Like, uh, my kids do this too. There's my, my son Desmond, yesterday we went to a symphony and, and he was like noticing the colors in the background. He's like, oh dad, the lights just changed. They were dark blue and now they're mermaid blue. There's, there's a change. It's the same blue. It's a blue, but it's a hue of blue. Can I tell you the good news is this. God forgives all hues of sin. Every sin. Every sin. Every sin. Every idle word. Every sin you think you can just sweep under the rug and not have to worry about it because it's a small sin. Jesus forgives those sins. Those sins that have caused people to live and spend the rest of their lives in a penitentiary because they committed the most atrocious act in human history. God can forgive those sins. That's the God we serve. Forgiveness is literally this. It's releasing someone from their wrongs fully, freely, and forever. When Jesus has forgiven us, he releases you from the the, the weight of that action. Not not the, not the, the side effects 
or the lasting effects, those we have to work through and process. But the spiritual weight of that sin, the Lord has released from you fully, freely, and forever. Are you thankful for that? That when we stand before the Lord, and if we have Christ as our Savior, and we've transferred who we are, our identity, and everything we have into His account, there is a cosmic reversal that takes place. And when we see God in heaven, He doesn't see our sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. That is good news. Thank you, Jesus. But can I just tell you this? Sometimes people believe that God is a forgiver in the New Testament and he's a tyrant in the Old Testament. I've heard some horrible theologians, uh, if you even want to call them that, say this, that, that God was in progression, that God grew in understanding of the human existence and the condition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he was angry and irate and always, you know, loud and just, ah, lightning bolts, everyone, ah. And then in the New Testament, he grew up a little bit, went through some puberty, and, and now God was a good God. And he's gracious, and he, he's kind, and he frolics in the fields and butterflies, and he's singing, and they land and perch on his shoulders. That's a lie. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And can I tell you this? God in the Old Testament was still a God of grace. In Exodus chapter 34, let me give you some quick context to this. If you go just two chapters before Exodus 34 and Exodus 32, God has just, uh, right after God had, had crossed, remember when he, when he split the seas and, and the people of, of uh, formerly the slaves of Egypt now, now escaping through the, through the Dead Sea or the Red Sea and, and it's, it's, it's parted one on each side and they get through and, and God brings manna from heaven and feeds them. He is a pillar of, uh, of fire at night, guiding them at night and keeping them warm and he is a cloud covering them during the day. God is there all in all. He's done everything for them. And, and then in Exodus 32, uh, Moses, the leader of these, the, of these freed slaves going to find the promised land, um, the, there's something that happens. Moses is like, hey, I'm going to go up to Mount Sinai. God is going to speak to me, give me the law, and I'm going to come back down, and we're going to serve God for the rest of our lives, and we're going to just dance through the, through the desert. It's going to be great, right? Uh, she's like, so just, just hold tight, guys. I'll be back, right? So he goes, and he's actually gone for about a week or so. Some scholars say he was up to three weeks, and he's up there, and he's just in the presence of God, and they're singing songs. It's beautiful, and he's getting, he's getting like all the Ten Commandments, and God, the finger of God, the Word says that he just inscribes them on the tablet. It's beautiful. Moses comes down, and guess what? That little sabbatical that Moses took, the people asked themselves, where is Moses has he left us here in the wilderness? Where's our God? Right? And they're freaking out. And they go to Aaron, his brother, and they're like, Aaron, you got to make a God for us quick because ours has abandoned us and Moses has left us. So Mo Aaron is like uh, under pressure. He's like, okay, give me all of your gold. And they, they give him all his gold. And he, and, he, and he forms with great meticulous skill a golden calf. And he pulls it out and he says, this is your God. And then these people who just witnessed God do the impossible, begin worshiping and dancing. And the word says, committed acts of revelry. Now that is a churchy way of saying the worst type of physical sins that one could commit. And I'll leave that up to your imagination. Horrible. God had just 
done all these things, and you think these people would have a, an ounce of gratitude to, to just wait on the Lord, but they, they don't. Moses comes down, and he's like, guys, I'm back, and look what God brought. And he sees this, and he's just like, I'm done with you, and he smashes them. And Moses goes up to the Lord, and he's like, God, I'm, these people, I, I don't know what to do. And just through the discourse of conversation, the Lord says this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, with Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. He, he got intimate. He's like, if, if people behave in ways that are unbecoming, it's because they don't know me in the way that they should. Listen, friend, when you sin, it's because you've lost sight of your Lord. You don't see him as clearly as you should. He says here, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Look at those words. God is slow to anger, long fuse. How many of you are thankful for God who is slow to anger, abounding in love? How much love does God, he's, about, he's overflowing in it. And steadfast love and faithfulness. Next verse. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. The Bible implies here generations, for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Three words, and I'm going to break these up in a second here. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of their fathers on their children and on their children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Let's pause there one second. I know right now some of us have wayward children who aren't serving Jesus and you read this and you're like, is it my fault that they're not worshiping Jesus? Let me just tell you, it's not your fault. Let me release what, what, what the world or what religion will try to place on your shoulders. It is not your fault. We do have autonomy. What, what is he talking about here? Is he saying if you choose to sin that your children then are now cast off from God. That's not what, what the, the Bible teaches. What this is telling us is that iniquity, and we're going to talk about iniquity in a second, has a residual effect. Ooh, listen to me, friends. Listen to me, please, please, in the name of Jesus. Your decisions you make now will impact generations. For better or for worse. I'll, I'll be honest. My parents divorced when I was young, and no, no judgment. I, I believe in honoring our parents. I'm not casting judgment on them. Some, some things happen. But let me just tell you, as one who had nothing to do with it, it impacted me later on in life. I get to college. I'm saved. I love Jesus. I'm going into the ministry, and I realize I got some unresolved issues I got to work through. just the reality of sin. But God is gracious. He's kind. He's merciful. He's abounding in faithfulness, love, and steadfast mercy. And he forgives all iniquity, all sin, all unrighteousness. So once again, friends, sin is a reality. It's horrifying, but God forgives all sin. Let me tease these words really quickly. 
And by tease, I mean, let me, let me just draw some explanation. What does iniquity mean? Iniquity means premeditated or planned sin. Um, some, 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 someone would do it this way. Uh, ooh, my, my husband goes to work at this time, and I know I can get online and message that individual. I'm going to wait for them to leave, and then I'll, I'll hop online and start that relationship. That, that's premeditated sin. Sometimes sin happens, just a, a weakness of, of will, and you just commit a sin, you're like, oh, dang it. He's saying iniquity is a premeditated or a planned sin. Look what it says in Micah chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who plan, everybody say the word, iniquity. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. Iniquity is planned sin. Listen, God always gives you a way out of sin. And some of you may be planning sin right now. You may have ways to maybe embezzle money or, or, or not, not take care of things that God is calling you to do. And, and he's given you an option to either honor him or not. Don't give in to iniquity. Confess it. Bring it into the light, what is kept in the darkness. Because guess what? There is coming a day when all things done in darkness will be brought into the light. So expose it now, friends. It's much easier to pull weeds when they are barely grown than it is when they are ginormous trees. God forgives iniquity. I have a one and a two. The second definition of iniquity, literally, if you look it up in the, in the Bible, it says King David. And if I had time, I'd go into the story of him and Bathsheba and how he planned this horrible thing. But God is so gracious, even in the Old Testament. David should have gone off to war, stayed at home, saw a woman bathing, said, who is that? Someone says, oh, that's Uriah, the Hittite's wife. And he's like, oh, I know Uriah. He's a good soldier. Bring her to me. Should have looked away. Should have gone to war. Should have been like, I got to get out of here. Instead, he kept giving in and planned it. End up having a relationship. She's pregnant. He's like, oh, man, I got to. Instead of saying, I got to make things right, what does he do? He says, I got to double down in my iniquity. And what does he do? He bring Uriah home. Have him sleep with, with his wife, and, and maybe we can just absolve ourselves of this situation. Uriah is a good soldier. He's like, surely, while we're off at war and my friends are dying on the battlefield, good, good soldier. Well, my friends are off in battle. I can't enjoy the, you know, meal, a meal with my wife. I'm going to sleep outside my house. What a man. And you think that would have broke David's heart but he doubles down. He calls for the leader of the military and says, hey, tomorrow when Uriah goes back to battle, put him on the front lines and then pull the army back. David, no. He doubles down iniquity, premeditated, planned sin. And what do we find? Is it it? Is, is David over? For some reason, no. David looks up to God through the prophet Nathan, who had a, he had a friend who corrected him, and he's like, I have sinned against God. Look up Psalm 51. I've sinned against God and God alone. God, forgive me. Return to me the joy of my salvation. Do not cast your presence from me. Create a, a right spirit within, within me, God. He repents, legitimately repents. And what does the word tell us? David is not defined by that iniquity. We see him in the word of God as King David, 
In fact, Jesus even is later referred to as son of David. We know David to be a man after God's own heart, so I'm here to tell you this morning, I don't think there's many people who've done things that David has done. Not even a far, a far cry from David. And if David could end his legacy known as a man after God's own heart, I'm here to tell you that our gracious God can transform your hardened heart and your heart of just brokenness into a heart that is after him. And what does it require? It requires us to stand and confess and admit, Lord, I need you. I want you. Forgive me of my sin. Don't just repeat it in a creed. It says we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Every person under the sound of my voice, we've already admitted we all have the same condition. We are predisposed towards sin. We have a predisposition towards sin. But I know a Savior who can change your heart, who can set you on solid ground, who can transform your affections. And don't listen to the world. The world says you're just born this way. You're always going to be this way. Your, your parents were an alcoholic. You're an alcoholic. There's an alcoholic gene. That may be true. But I know a God who is designed and who can transform us from the molecular level. A God who can do the impossible. Who can transform and change us if we are willing to admit we need his hand in our life. I need Jesus. You need Jesus. Can we stand together? As I read and conclude, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies. I already mentioned those. You're born this way. Just embrace who you are. No, friend. Even if you were born this way, I was born with a condition called sin. It's all derived from the same root. And there is only one who can deal with it. Listen, I'm not telling us to be ugly and point out certain sins over others and elevate some. And Listen, we are a church that believes in belonging. We believe God wants you to come here. If, you, if you've got identity issues, if you're listening online and you're thinking and questioning, I want to look at you right now. If you're online and you're questioning whether or not I should go to that church, whether they'll welcome me or accept me or love me, or I got all this baggage, come. We love you. We believe in belonging at Zaic Church. We believe this also, that God can deliver us of all sin, of all unrighteousness. He can save us. Don't let anyone, therefore, capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. It sounds good. Let's believe it. No, he says this, that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world. They're demonic rather than from Christ. Verse 12 Verse 13, rather, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record. He doesn't believe in cancel culture, but he'll cancel the record of your sins and the charges against us, and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. Jesus, Jesus. My dad always says there is nothing in this world that's free. So this whole idea of 
you know, canceling our student loans. I'm not going to get political here. I don't care what you think. Someone's got to pay for it. Our sins were canceled. God didn't just be like, eh. He paid for them through Jesus Christ. Our sins are paid for. You right now, you stand in Christ as a new creation. And maybe that's not your story. Maybe you're like, oh, pastor, maybe I was raised in church, but I'm not living for the Lord. This is your time to say, Jesus, make me a new creation. I'm yours. Every eye closed, every head bowed, every hand lifted. Let's cry out to God in this moment. Father, I thank you so much that you are a good and gracious God. Thank you that your word tells us a true testimony of who you are. You're not a mean, old, judgmental God in the Old Testament and a, and a nice God in the New Testament. You are a gracious God. Has, you have always been a gracious God. We see glimpses of David who committed the worst atrocities and yet you still forgave and restored. And, and the beautiful thing is that you even redeemed that situation. Bathsheba was actually one who is in the lineage of Jesus. Thank you, God. So that means the sins that I've committed, that I'm like, Lord, there's no way you can turn this around. You can, you have, and you will because you are that good. So, Father, may our heart that says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, could that be a reality this morning? If you're in this room and you would say, Pastor, I'm not living for Jesus, I'm convinced of sin, but I I need some strength and some help and some support in dealing with it. If you would say that, would you just lift up your hand, every eye closed, so I know who to pray for in this moment. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for honest individuals who are willing to confess. Confess with our heart, believe in our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Father, I pray a blessing over every single person who just made that, that admission. Lord, I pray that you would empower them and help them through your Holy Spirit, to accomplish the things you've called them to do. May you restore their joy. And Father, I am praying for everyone else in this room. Maybe you would say, Pastor, I I just want more of Jesus. I, I sing the same song that we started with, more of you, Lord. All I want is you. If you would say, that's what I want. I want Jesus. Would you just lift up your hand so I know who to pray for right now? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Father, I pray right now that we would come to expect and realize that you are the God that meets every one of our needs. Thank you, Jesus. You deal with the physical, you have dealt with the emotional, and you handle the spiritual. You are all-encompassing God. Thank you for your grace. And all God's people said, amen. Come on, let's give the Lord some praise.